So you were in the film, but you got cut out. I got cut out. Yes. Oh wow! It was the, it was the first well, time. Stick, I, stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was the. It was the first time I hadn't had to write that that letter saying, <laughs> "You were great. It's not. Not you. It's me. It's me." Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Director's Guild of America. In today's episode, an Irish family experiences a tumultuous time in director Kenneth Branagh's drama, Belfast. The semi-autobiographical tale follows a working-class family and their nine-year-old son during the late 1960s in the Northern Ireland capital, where political and religious clashes turn their world upside down and change their lives forever. In addition to Belfast, Mr. Branagh's directorial credits include the feature films Much Ado About Nothing, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Hamlet, Thor, Cinderella, and Murder on the Orient Express. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Branagh shares insight into the making of Belfast with fellow director Christopher Nolan. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you for being here tonight, Ken, um, and uh, thank you for this wonderful movie. I don't want to jump ahead uh, with the conversations we've already had about the film, but uh, it's clearly a very personal work, first and foremost. Um, and so just to, just to kick off, the simple version of this question is, what's true? No. You know, how much of this, how much of this is, is from your life, is, is real recollections? Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this, and thank you all for coming out uh, tonight. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, uh, well, from 50 years, and with this uh, idea of taking the perspective of a, of a, of a nine-year-old, um, obviously the truth was going to be not entirely sort of uh, objective or strictly accurate. In a way, it, that was intentional. I mean, one one big element of that was not to do what... I think some people feel obliged to do when they deal with anything that is to do with the Irish question, which is to try and sort of solve or explain it all in one film. Far mightier minds than I uh, have, have grappled with that one. I knew that I wanted to see this sort of big shift happen and be written across the features of a nine-year-old's uh, eye. So to some extent, a heightened version of it, of, of, of what happened was what I was after. One that was also being processed through the imagination of a nine-year-old who was very caught up in storytelling in 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 the movies um that said so so there are there are heightened moments in the picture but that said one of the reasons for making it was the uh, opening scene the um the the sort of uh, 20 seconds or so that that changed my life which was hearing that mob and then that mob appearing and then the street being uh, transformed and everything about my life little did i know being transformed and and how we do that right and how it was felt by me feels very much right out of uh, my my guts as it were and then at the other extreme end which um, may seem harder to believe and it is of course absurd uh, my mother did indeed drag me back into the supermarket that we were looting um, <laughs> with um, with a determination to give an example about you know the the, the Ten Commandments and thou shalt not steal uh, entirely forgetting that we were walking back into a situation of such incredible danger that it became a tipping point 
in terms of her view about whether we should leave or not. What immediately follows in the film after that is not you know accurate in the same way but but yeah those those two ends of the most extreme examples of what really occurred are, are, are indeed the truth and was it washing powder was it the brand uh well i tell you the was truth was it biological I, <laughs> it was it was biological but i think in fact if i'm honest uh uh, it was tied, um, <laughs> but we, but they wouldn't let us have it. They wouldn't let us have it. Tide is also, in fact, I believe, biological, but uh, uh, Omo was a rival brand, so um, for what it's worth, uh, they were both biological, but uh, Omo was cheaper. Fantastic. Uh, so many choices uh, tonally to talk about. I mean, clearly for me, you know, it's, it's, it's told from, you know, Buddy's point of view, from, from the nine-year-old's point of view. Um, I loved starting in colour, and seeing Belfast as it is today. I felt that was enormously respectful to the city. I don't know if you could elaborate on your thinking behind that and then the shift to black and white and why black and white for the story. The, it was important to me to see modern-day uh, Belfast to uh, be, because eventually in the telling of the story, the idea of um, really um, understanding you know, the why of the storytelling... Um, so in what followed from what you've just seen were 30 years in which 3,700 people lost their lives. Many, many more people were affected by um, the, 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 the ripples of those uh, appalling losses. And yet we're now approaching 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, which has produced a miraculous, fragile, imperfect, some would say deeply flawed, but nevertheless functioning peace largely and that across one generation is is sort of miraculous and so i wanted to point that out in a way that that uh, with a city as it as it is today it was was sort of unimaginable in the middle of of uh, of the troubles and i always uh, mindful of a phrase i've seen many times uh, above the entrance to holocaust museums and the phrase is the simple one lest we forget and uh, i suppose you know, it was driven by that that idea of, of of understanding, whilst saluting in the film all the coping mechanisms, humour and music and song and dancing and anything that took you quickly to a lighter side. That there was a a darkness from which we'd emerged, and the black and white was an instinct about a way of looking in a sort of poetic way or a sort of soulful way at a, a, a working class environment. And, and the sort of um, pictorial inspirations in a way were movies from the 60s in, in the UK, movies like This Sporting Life or Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, uh, in a way glossy, you might say glossy, black and white, but but uh, and it was a sort of... Uh, from there all the way through to the kinds of pictures that I was watching on television, all in black and white, regardless of what their origin might have been because the the telly wasn't colour, which was, I would call, a sort of Hollywood black and white, very much um, defined by by very striking images in John Ford films or in in noir films. And so uh, they they seemed to me to carry this sort of additional weight this forensic weight you could you could go in go inside the characters minds and harris and balukos our cinematographer said as we were exploring he said well he said i suppose an obvious thing to say is that 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 with color you can absolutely describe people but with black and white in this kind of story you can also feel people 
I think you've cleared up one question I had, which is why the TV wasn't in colour, as the <laughs> films are. It never occurred to me that, of course, your TV was in black and white. Um, what, what was the inspiration behind uh, showing the magic of, of film and theatre in colour? I mean, I'd love that reflected in... in uh, Judy Dench's glasses. You know, it's it, wonderful. It was to do. I don't know. I don't know what it was like for you. Whether you had pictures, experiences, or a general sense of when, when if it was the case for you, you were hooked. When, whenever the you know. It, mm. you, but for me, it was all the storytelling excitement was in those um, classic Hollywood movies that I was seeing on 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 television. But the immersion and the trip to the stars was was at the cinema in but you know this is a wonderful cinema and um maybe this maybe the actual circumstances of how we saw the pictures you know wasn't so great but it seemed like it was quadraphonic immersive widescreen saturated technicolor you know come and grab you by the scruff of the neck and and as it were we were willing participants so you know i recently i watched the james bond film in 4x which is the version that has the shaky seats you know you get the smoke and the water blows up and everything and so when he's reversing the car you're doing this but back watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang the whole sort of pre-publicity was about you'll fall out of your seat it went that you know, well the reason you felt like you were falling out of your seat is that like a sucker you just leant forward you know and you you were the willing participant no 4xd seats required you just but we were just we were ready for it and it was when I coming in from the street, a street under northern skies, lots of rain and monochrome. That's how I felt. I saw in a magnificent black and white Belfast. Um, we went into these, you know, picture palaces. Uh, particularly in Belfast, there were big ones in the centre of town, and it was really. They, it was like going to the moon. It was so exciting, and um, so that was what was exploding in my imagination um, and that's why having the film do that in colour was a way of just saying basically every time the kid bumps up against art every time he bumps up against storytelling ways to explain a world that he can't understand because his own world has literally turned upside down and the, a recurring um, feature and something that's really stuck with me for all these all these decades was just this idea of in a, in the period of a couple of hours the ground was lifted from beneath our feet quite literally the paving stones had been lifted i didn't know you could do this paving stones lifted up and now they're all at either end of the street a street that you now have to check in and out of and when I was walking up the street now, I'm literally walking on sand. So this sort of sense of complete and utter instability in the wake of that event had me just throwing myself into the wonder of colour and cinema and stories from elsewhere. So memories like the, the flagstones coming up and, and becoming part of the barricades. And, um, you wrote this film yourself, um, which you don't often do entirely on your own sit down sit in your shed i guess and write the script um how much were you drawing purely on your own recollections and how much were you sort of checking with other members of the family who were available or, or over the years whether you'd sort of check your own recollections against uh, other people's perceptions or the facts or the, the historical reality you know, I didn't do too much in terms of the family side of things, although I knew in my own mind that as soon as I'd finished it, I would show it to my brother and my sister. My parents were gathered many years ago. Um, and if my brother and sister 
didn't want me to do it, I wouldn't do it. It was it, the act of doing it was a sort of um, was going to be enough in, in and of itself. Sorry, you mean you would show them the script as soon as the script? Was yes, exactly. Before yes. you made the film. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Before did, before even thinking whether could we make the film, I just wanted to feel that they were comfortable with it, and so I hadn't I hadn't re- I, because of what we said at the beginning about the idea of. Um, you know, just experiencing truth as something that is just uh, is subjective anyway. Um, that I, I didn't feel uh, that I would get anything other than many other different points of view uh, about about you know familial stuff. I did go back and do a lot of research about the time, sort of politically and historically, just to get the sort of um, to be reminded that that day was the fifteenth of August and weird things over here. Woodstock was happening on that particular weekend. Um, reminding myself of the weather it was a very very hot august over in san francisco it was a summer of love it was there was there was you know the the world was fizzing socially socially politically the world was fizzing the year before paris riots and everything i was aware the music scene was was sort of making the uk a very fizzy place to be and a lot of this had spilled out onto the onto the streets of ireland in the preceding couple of years with the civil rights movement um um, gaining momentum and eventually that's indeed it was happening over here uh, so I gave myself that context but then uh, I tried to I tried to put myself into Buddy's frame of mind and try to both understand how he experienced this big profound shift and keep it there so of course I looked reminded myself of specific elements of the politics but found myself uh, regularly just reducing it to what he experienced as the onset of this sort of new tribalism. So um, two hours ago, Paddy lives two doors down and he's a Catholic and I'm a Protestant, but we live in the same size houses. Our parents have got the same kind of jobs. There's no economic difference. We've played together all our lives. And two hours later, well, we, he's not allowed to be here and it's not safe for us to be mixing with them that sort of polar, instant polarizing position, what one of the characters in the film says, you know, you're either with us or you're against us, uh, was something I wanted to look at from the from that uncomprehending uh, perspective and get away. Once I'd re-familiarized myself with the politics, I chose not to get into the detail of it. I did spend a lot of time looking at news archive footage of the time all the way through uh, from before, during, and in, a lot in post to try and give a soupçon of the context of the real the real thing um but uh no i I didn't i didn't go and look for sort of uh, supporting evidence i wanted to sort of follow my instinct about what he thought in terms of the practicalities of making the film having written the script having shown it to your brother and sister and got the sign off um what were the practical considerations obviously you're doing it during covid during the lockdown did you choose not shoot in Belfast, or was that never an option? Or what was your process in terms of how you how you put this together? Um, it was a step by step questioning of could we do it? What, how did you now make films? Uh, we were just coming out of the first lockdown. Uh, people were very nervous because of the uncertainty that lay ahead, um, and so you know there were practical things. Can you get insurance for a film? Can you get insurance against COVID? Somebody gets COVID and the thing gets shut down. Uh, is all that money gone? It, was anybody 
insuring against that and what were the terms and they were complex sometimes and and then there was uh, we went immediately to Belfast could we do the whole thing there not practically easily no um, 1969 a street there we were going to have to completely re you know look at that possibly do it in bits I knew that I wanted to put the camera in places that you know couldn't deal with uh, real things i wanted to be able to move stuff and, and and find ways to frame that that could we could have complete control over then we had the covid protocols we've got a 10 year old boy we've got an 85 year old national treasure we've got to find a way to 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 bubble to bubble them in in a in a way that is going to work out and uh, i think it was us and and batman the batman uh, were the first two films back and shooting um and uh, we were all i remember um, for instance, uh, you know, we had a, we'd done lots of work. We'd given lots of child licenses um, from local authorities uh, across the years. Uh, you need this before you can have permission to work with a, a youngster, as you know. And I remember the uh, the person who granted those licenses in the local authority uh, sitting down to essentially uh, for us to be auditioned uh, as responsible people in the new time of COVID and as she sat down, she was a very nice woman but she said I just want to tell you, uh, I spoke to my boss uh, before I came here and I was very thrilled to know that he will support me if I decide to close you down um, so this was, the, this was the woman granting the child licenses, so I got absolutely nothing against it but what she was doing was taking her job very, very seriously and so was everybody else so she then did an inspection for our three zoned areas for our colour coding, for our one way systems for where are you putting Judy Dench where do you put the kid where's the where's the you know so a lot of it was was logistics 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 um and uh and really nervously going one step to the the, the next and then you know so I guess about 120 people at, at most when we were working and every day we we tested everybody for two weeks before they arrived and then we tested everybody every single day so it was a very very sweaty moment on the the next morning when all the, all the test results came in and uh, we you know we got lucky on the penultimate and last day we had one positive case in each case asymptomatic people were not on well thank god and they were in the they were in zoned off areas so we, it was possible to continue but um at that stage in the early stages of making the films like this it was it was a a sort of series of um you know gambles i suppose responsible gambles you don't want to mess with people's health but we were trying to get back to making films and so it was a it was a step by step nervous making but also a process that where the relish amongst the crew, the sense of privilege to be able to do it and excitement was, was great. And, you know, you may be amused uh, by this because I'm sure you've been in, in this situation many times. When we decided we're going to go for this, the one thing that was amazing was everybody was available. I mean, there was, there was no, you, you made a call and literally, who, who do you want? Who do you want there? Because they're all here. People were ringing me. Uh, so that was, uh, that was one byproduct of that early moment of COVID that was, was helpful. Well, getting on to casting, uh, I mean, we've just seen what a great director you are, what a great writer you are. You're not inexperienced as an actor, let's be frank. Uh, was there a temptation to, to take a part yourself? Um, or did you, what was your thinking behind not appearing in the film? Did you just want to focus? Well, I'll be honest with you. No, I was, there was a, a version of the script and we, we shot it where an older version of Buddy that I played featured a few times during and then comes back to Belfast. Uh, and we shot all of that and it just didn't work. It didn't work. It was superfluous. And um, 
So you were in the film, but you got cut out. I got cut out. Yes. Oh wow! It was the, it was the first well, time. Stick, I, stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was the. It was the first time I hadn't had to write that that letter saying, <laughs> "You were great. It's not. Not you. It's me. It's me." Um, so so I just had to say that internally. Um, yeah. So I, I was in, and then I cut myself out completely. Fantastic. Um, so Jude, you know, the young the young buddy. Um, how did you find him? Uh, 300 self-tapes came in from a, an infrastructure in Northern Ireland, which is very, very impressive for films these days. T- you know, 10 years of Game of Thrones and many other great great mm. pieces of work mean, mean you can plug into um, anywhere that you might find a talented person. Uh, he, so he did many Zoom auditions, and then he eventually, we started doing some Zoom talks, and um, he struck me as, uh, as somebody who was a, a great listener, he had a good sense of humor. I liked the fact that he was an Irish dancer. Um, he, so he'd practiced a lot. He, I, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, well, on a Saturday morning, we get up about five o'clock and we have to drive a long way across Ireland and then I have to do my first dance. Then I have to wait for a couple of hours. Then if I get through to the next round, I do the dance again. Then if I get through to the final, I do again. And sometimes you don't win. Um, and I thought, that's great. That is great prep for being in a film. You know, you'll get up very early. You'll hang about. You'll have to be really good when they ask you to come on. And... Um, so, so that was helpful. But and sometimes you don't win. And sometimes you don't win. You know, we didn't talk about percentages, but definitely sometimes you don't win. Um, but he, uh, you know, half the film was going to depend on how he reacted, how he listened, and, uh, how, and, and sort of so he seemed somebody who was listening, not just preparing to say something again. He, you know, he, he was very unusual. He got strong opinions and, you know, he's got a proper big personality. And, um, but in, in the end, it's an act of faith. At least that's, you know, you give it a go. I, I, I can't tell you. He walked in and he was a natural. He walked in, he was really, really good. Um, and we knew we couldn't make the film unless we believed we found a young actor on whose shoulders we could carry it. We thought we had, and for the first two days, the only note I gave him was don't look at the camera. He could not stop looking at the camera. I mean, <laughs> ju- ju- at the beginning or at the end, he'd do- it became a sort of game. It's like, when would you catch him doing this thing? And then eventually I said, look, you just go, you've got to look at something else. What am I going to look at? I said, look at Judy Dench. She's really interesting. Um, and he, uh, and he, 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 the, 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 he then had many more scenes with the others, and he, he, he then saw this incredible sponge really soaking up what it was like to be on a set we had a you know you didn't you come across many actors like this who are i call them own accord actors so stellan skarsgård for instance is an own accord actor and what that means is that um i i'm on set preparing something and the first ad says oh stellan's on his way own accord i.e he's decided to show up before being called um well judy dench is an own accord actor and so he so young jude started to hear this thing at judy dench own accord and he <laughs> started to ask the questions then eventually after a week i heard jude hill own a court um, <laughs> <laughs> so jamie dornan katrina balf uh, how do you go about casting your parents well uh i did want to have in the film um actors who perhaps had you know very strong um clarity about the sort of culture of that place and Jamie's from just outside Belfast Katrina is from the south of Ireland but lived on the border as a, as a, as a young person her father was a Garda sergeant um, so she very keen understanding of some of the challenges of the segregated world that uh, that part of Ireland sometimes is um, 
you know, they're, they're incredibly glamorous people, the pair of them. They're fantastically down to earth and nice, but they're very beautiful. Uh, my parents, I couldn't begin to tell you that they were that sort of glamorous, but they did have that fizz and I wanted that fizz between them. You know, it was uh, certainly that crockery went flying across the kitchen. Um, and um, I would say it was a passionate, a passionate relationship and uh, both Jamie and I remember seeing Katrina in, in uh, Ford versus Ferrari I don't know if you saw that film's excellent film and she has a scene as Christian Bale's wife where he has once what well, he has not told her that he's about to go back to racing and she calls him out on it and she she previously in the movie has been quite a sort of understanding and 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 um generous spirit she comes out in that scene in the car it's quite dangerous because he's driving and she gets very worked up as a sort of tiger and so this uh i wrote in the screenplay when when she picks up when she picks up the kid in the riot and she lifts the shield which is then having you know uses it to protect her, her son um i said and she you know she goes through the crowd like a sort of urban bodicea um <laughs> and uh I, I felt as though she could do that she had that um sort of fire in the belly uh, both my parents had that for sure, and and, and so do uh, Jamie and, and Katrina. And I think back then, inevitably, you sort of you glamorise your parents, you idealise them, you know. Um, and there was so much of the sort of ad hoc socialising, um, these street parties that seemed to if anybody had you know more than a bottle of Guinness, it was off. Um, you know, it was all happening. And if somebody had a new record or somebody could play the penny whistle or something. You know, it was the, the, the and, and then everybody had a sort of turn. My dad told bad jokes, and my mother loved to dance and you know and sing, and 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 they they were not alone. And uh, Kieran Hines, who you very graciously gave all the best lines in the film to, I think, <laughs> uh, and, and Judy Dench. I, I mean, I think they're extraordinary in the film, and there's such extraordinary love between them and for the family around them. Uh, I mean. Dame Judy Dench, you've worked with for many, many years and know very yeah. well. And uh, so, talk a little bit, if you would, about your relationship with with her, and then also about Kieran and and how you came to to cast him. Well, Kieran um, lived uh, about half a mile from me, uh, so that park that the kid goes to school in, Kieran was on the other side of the park as well. He's a tiny bit older than me, but um, and we never met, of course, because I'm Protestant and he was Catholic, and uh, we didn't. That didn't happen in in with that particular in that particular part of the world. Um, he, he's he's been a fantastic actor across an amazing career. I think he's such got such truth, got such depth, he's got such soul. I would say he's got real soul. And he, uh, so I've always wanted to work with him, but it's 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 uh, it just never worked out. But he 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 knew the place, he knew the people, and he felt that the character very much reminded him of his own father and his grandfather. And um, so he was he was somebody he was an absolute first choice. And Judy, um, we have worked together so many times, and and uh, she has not unlike Jude, I would say that she has a quality in great actors that I see, which is a capacity to absolutely connect to a childlike sense of wonder about about the process. So she still is surprised and delighted by acting. There's nothing sort of casual. She she uh, uh, she laughingly says, if I asked her to do anything, she'd say yes. But in fact, she's a rigorous. Um, kind of judge and you have to really no you've got to convince her she and the two things that'll make her say yes to a job is if it really scares her um, it, that's almost the first thing that she requires and then you know it needs to be something she hasn't done before so the accent scared the bejesus out of her uh, she hadn't connected to her own irish background her parents were from 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 the south of ireland 
And so, you know, I knew that she, she would bring, as she did with, with Jude, a sense, at whatever age she is now, 85, no, she's going to be 87 this week. She's going to be 87 and she's wow. uh, smart as a nut and, you know, um, youthful, ever youthful. Um, she brought that, you know, own accord. She would show up and she would be uh, ready and then she would be playful. So, for instance, in that very last close-up of her, uh, there we were outside, sun was shining, and I said, Judy, so I've scripted these lines, but I would love to uh, see if we could improvise. There might be some other things or, or other ways for them to come out. Do you mind if we just keep the camera running and I'll just throw some things in? And she's completely unthrown by this, game as anything uh, to do it. And um, but, but doing two things, so listening to remarks of mine, but which I think are sort of mild irritant to her, but they, but they are, you know, they might be occasionally stimulating, but I'm also seeing this other, this other thing working out. She knows the camera's still running, so she's still hot for the scene, as it were. She's still, she's aware that that's a good thing, you know, that, and that, and that on film, it can be about moments. And if she hasn't quite found that moment yet, that big moment, if we keep running, there's a chance she might just land it. So I'd throw, throw a few things in. And then eventually it was after two or three minutes of constant back and forth between the pair of us and her maintaining that still Mount Rushmore stillness in that massive close-up eventually she did exactly what you see in the movie and I cut and I went to the the, the monitor I, I, like you I stand by the camera and just watch live so I went back there and said can I see let me see it and let me put the headphones on and I looked and heard and then went oh no 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 what is that is something on the soundtrack something on the soundtrack who messed that up and our sound recordist Denise Yard said uh, so that, that is your intake of breath when she got it so beautifully right. <laughs> so I listened, I said, you don't be daft. And I listened again and I heard, <gasps> and it was me, me getting all excited about Judy Dench being a great actor. Fantastic. So before we, before we wrap it up, um, when uh, you showed uh, me and Emma the film uh, privately some months ago, uh, we had a, a rare privilege, which I want to share with the audience here, of being able to finish the film and then say to you, okay, what happened next? Well, uh, we went to England, and in a way, not to be sort of sad sack about it, because obviously I, I'm I'm sitting here. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, but uh, the, what they talk about on the bus, what she lays out as the as the the choice, um, you know, to come away from something they know, a large extended family, into something that will be different and maybe uncomfortable. Um, a decision made for our safety. Um, and for the economic opportunity in a, in a difficult time was nevertheless one that would come at a price. And uh, the price was some of what she lays out in the scene. And uh, in a way, when we left, there was, I think, a greater amount of isolation for the family. We just didn't have that big network. It takes a village to raise a child. We were in that village. We all got raised by it. And when we moved across, uh, that, that wasn't the same thing. I think we all became much more insular. And in a way, one of the reasons, and maybe the most profound reason to uh, make the film was was because we didn't speak about it ever. We never we never talked about, um, uh, you know, w- that day or those nine months where that decision was made. Um, and I think it was because a they c- couldn't you know, broker the idea of anybody parading their so-called suffering. They would never have called it suffering. They would never have called it trauma. They would have said everybody else is at least or much worse off than us, so we're not going to bang on about, listen, we got out. You know, we have our health. We have each other, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that... um, uh, They did did pay... uh, They did pay a, a sort of 
price of some kind internally in terms of what they gave up as individuals. And um, uh, but we had, you know, many. Many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful times and opportunities, partly through the the, the, the amazing world of uh, of movies. Um, and I'll give you one last thing that 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 happened was that uh, uh, years later, years later, we um, uh, we went to the uh, we went to the White House. Can you believe it? And we were at the Kennedy Center Honors, and I'd worked with Jack Lemmon. And I was part of a tribute to Jack Lemmon that night. And all I can say was that when you've seen what you've seen, it was a great moment when we were walking arm in arm, the three of us, um, into the White House. And my mother turned and stopped and she said, gosh, it's a long way from York Street, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so, you know, they, they, they left all of that, but they got all of this. So uh, it worked out. Oh, wonderful. So, Ken, thank you so much for sharing the story behind the story but most importantly thank you so much for sharing your story on the big screen with us thank you thank you thank you thank you very much thank Thank you. you thank you thanks for listening to another dga q a if you'd like to hear more the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts and please share subscribe rate and review We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 